This is On and Off Your Mat Podcast, episode 70, Yoga for Stress and Anxiety. With the World Mental Health Day earlier this month and everything happening socially, politically, and health-wise in the world right now, I thought it was really a perfect time to dig in into the power of yoga to support us through these times. So for this episode, I sat down with Amanda Whiting. Amanda is a yoga teacher specializing in yoga for emotional well-being. Don't we all need this right now? She is the creator of the online programs Yoga for Stress and Anxiety and Yoga for Resiliency and Self-Compassion. Amanda is truly passionate about teaching and inspiring others to use posture, breath work, meditation, and just everything that yoga has to offer so they can manage anxiety, become more empowered, and cultivate a greater sense of well-being. As always, I really appreciate your support with this podcast. Have you already checked out our new Instagram page at On and Off Your Mat Podcast? We are starting all the way back from the beginning, revisiting every single episode. So come by and follow us so you can catch up on all the episodes you've missed and their content, or get reminders, the best nugget from your favorite episodes. And then you also stay up to date with the new episodes coming up. You can also continue to support this show through Patreon. For as low as $5 a month, you can get access to more content, exclusive episodes, tutorials, guided meditation, and more. And you also have a second and a third tier where you get access to some or all the classes we've been recording on Zoom and continue to record during this shelter in place. So if you'd like to have access to all of this and or you just like to help me in the creation of this podcast, then visit either Instagram or come on Patreon at patreon.com slash on and off your mat and become a premium member on the tier of your choice. All right, ready? Let's get to our episode of today with Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. So Amanda, for listeners that don't know you, can we start with you telling us a bit about yourself and your your journey, just so we have an idea? Yeah, so um, I live in Edmonton, Canada, and I'm a yoga teacher here. I've been teaching for just about eight years now, and I've been practicing since my early 20s, on and off, depending on how pregnant I was or Mm -hmm. how I was feeling in life. Um, and with that, I've really come into a specialty of yoga for mental health, specifically yoga for anxiety and for stress. Um, it is something that is very near and dear to my heart, um, as I have a generalized anxiety disorder and OCD. And so yoga is really something that helped me be able to transform my relationship to my own mental illness Mm. and not necessarily with the expectation of overcoming anything in particular, but forming a more friendship-based relationship with my my own experiences and my own life. Mm -hmm. So why turn to yoga instead of other methods to deal with that anxiety? How can yoga help in, in a general way and how did it help you precisely? So I very much um, believe in doing everything that you can do. And sometimes that means that yoga is a component of it. Hmm. So yoga is a component of my mental health um, for me. 
in that I also take medication. I also make sure that I have ongoing therapy. I have a really great relationship with my pharmacist and my psychiatrist and my entire medical team. And then on top of that, I do yoga. And that's going to work for some people and it's not going to work for others. For me, that's the trifecta that works really well is Mm -hmm. combining everything. And yoga is, I don't like to say anything is a cure because I think that, well, one, that's so far out of our scope of practice. But on top of that, with mental health, it's so dependent on individuality and on what works and also where you are in your mental health journey. So for some, what works one year won't necessarily Mm. be what works the next year. So the beauty of it is that, and there's so much scientific research that backs it up now that yoga can be balancing for our nervous system and I would say even more important than that gives us a sense of understanding what is happening in the body and facilitating a connection between the mind and the body, which can then tune us in more um, closely or more accurately to what is happening in our body, in our mind at any given moment. Mm -hmm. So yoga in that case is a tool of awareness to understand what's happening And then also understand when you try different things, how is it affecting you? Is it helping? How is it helping? Exactly. And on the flip side of that, is it not helping or is it making it worse? Mm -hmm. Because then, you know, you know, I always talk about creating this toolkit of different tools that you can use at any given moment. And so knowing, okay, that needs to come out of my toolkit, at least for right now, maybe I can revisit it another time. But it's not only what works, but also what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So just so we are on the same page, before we dive a little deeper into the tools and how and what we can do, can you define anxiety the way you see it or the way you're based, uh, the definition you're using, and also make the difference between that and stress? Because I find for some people it might not be super clear, is anxiety just really acute stress or, you know, so just making sure we are talking all about the same thing. Yeah. And it's actually quite a gray area because often anxiety is derived from prolonged stress. Mm -hmm. However, with everything, there can be situational or there can be prolonged. And sometimes it's a chemical reason. And sometimes it's a traumatic event that can stimulate the nervous system to go into a response. So with stress, stress happens to every single person. There is nobody that does not experience stress. And that is usually when your body is overtaxed to a certain degree that it's not entirely sure how to react. Mm. So, you know, we can look at this from a standpoint of um, when, when things are building up, when there's a lot to be done, when your body is taxed and you're not able to meet the natural rhythms of your body's requirements, that can produce a stress response. And that's different for everybody as well. The rhythms, my rhythm is different than your rhythm. So what might stress me might not be stressful for you or vice versa. Completely. And we see this so much in traumatic events specifically. Um, I often use the example of in 2017, my family was in what was overall a minor car accident. There were five of us in the car and there were five completely different reactions. I didn't actually know that I was hurt until 48 hours later. 
because I was like, what are we going to do? What is the plan here? I got out of the car. I took charge. My mom, who was in the car, got mad. She was just like, how dare that person hit us? I mean, it's an accident. My daughter, who was nine at the time, went into complete shock. My son was just trying to make everybody feel better. And my husband was completely confused as to what had just happened. We were all in the exact same accident with five different reactions. Mm -hmm. And so that's just an example of, you know, why some people might experience anxiety or stress or PTSD or depression based on different things that happen, even though, you know, we have this perception that we're all the same and we're not. So with anxiety, anxiety tends to be a significantly stronger um, sympathetic nervous system response where there is, um, there is a lot that can happen in the body. So in the body, rather, there is um, often a tightening in the chest, an increased heart rate, Uh, Blood flow goes to the extremities away from the digestive organs. Um, There can be tingling in the body, all of that type of thing. Those are all sympathetic nervous system responses, which we can experience in stress, just not typically in a heightened, um, like, or in a prolonged state for that heightened period of time. With anxiety, it can, again, ebb and flow and be of different varying degrees For some, you know, a panic attack is like a a true sympathetic nervous system response, but people can now, especially being in a pandemic, be living in a sympathetic nervous system response state for a prolonged period of time. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a little bit about, or you mentioned how yoga affects the nervous system and now you're relating anxiety and stress to that sympathetic response can you just go over a little bit how does it look, how anxiety looks particularly from the standpoint of the nervous system and how does yoga can affect that reaction or that um, interconnection? Yeah, absolutely. So we, are, we have an autonomic nervous system and then we have the two main branches, the sympathetic, which is our fight or flight and the parasympathetic. The way I remember it is sympathetic. I think of sympathy. They're, they're, you know, related to each other, those words. Mm -hmm. And it's your body having sympathy for you and Mm -hmm. trying to be helpful. Because we we kind of assume that a sympathetic nervous system response is a bad thing, but it's not. It's just when it fires inappropriately or in times that we don't want it to, but we need the sympathetic nervous system. It's a requirement. Yeah. To survive. And so to survive, exactly. And so this is, you know, part of what I was talking about in the beginning of befriending anxiety or befriending my own mental illnesses, because I I don't necessarily want them to never be there, you know? So the fight or flight um, is from the sympathetic and the parasympathetic is the rest and digest system. And it's the system that we always have both systems working, but there's generally one that's dominant at any given time. And that can shift throughout the day or weeks or months. Mm-hmm. With yoga, yoga works to bring overall balance of sun and moon, hatha, within our body, which then has an impact on the nervous system. Because if we look at the sympathetic, it has more aspects of the solar side of us. And if we look at the parasympathetic, it has more aspects of the lunar side of us. Now, with that, 
doing yoga, we are bringing our body into a natural rhythm. Whether that's with flow yoga, whether that's with yin yoga, whether that's with restorative yoga, yoga nidra, so on and so forth. We are encouraging this natural rhythm of our body by balancing both sides of our body. And therefore, when we practice yoga regularly, we have the invitation to be able to balance our nervous system as well. And so there's different things that will help with us with that. You know, something like restorative yoga is very much intended on balancing the parasympathetic nervous system. And if I remember right, you had Judith Lassiter on Mm -hmm. recently. Yeah, I listened to that episode. It was awesome. Um, And so, you know, she's like the the goddess of (laughs) completely. (laughs) Yeah, she is just, she's awesome. Um, So, you know, that's really aiming to bring some dominance into the parasympathetic nervous system. And the more that we practice yoga, the more our body understands that we have the ability to go in between these different nervous systems. And so, you know, I I try to really inform people, like if you get on your mat once every six months with the intention of calming down, it might work. It might. It will work better if you practice yoga regularly. Mm-hmm. Because then your body will have a memory of what is happening. And if you are practicing that not only when you are anxious or stressed, but when you're also calm and relaxed, it has an imprinting on you, which you can then go back to. And it's way easier to, to, to form this correlation between the mind and the body mm-hmm. over a consistent period of time rather than a sporadic one. And the pendulum of going from one to the other is smaller, right? That range yes. of movement between two sides of the nervous system, if you actively move towards your parasympathetic activation or dominate, dominance more often, then you're not starting from as far back into that sympathetic response. So you're a little bit closer to that midline and you can go back and forth. But if you do it once a year or once, you know, however long, you're probably much further in your sympathetic response if you tend to have high level stress and anxiety in your life. Absolutely. I'm nodding emphatically at you right now. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The other thing too with that is that, um, you know, you may still go really far into that pendulum swing of the sympathetic nervous system, especially if you have an anxiety disorder or, or something that really, really fires up the sympathetic nervous system. However, if you're practicing regularly, that pendulum doesn't need to swing as far over mm. to the parasympathetic because it knows that as soon as you approach it, it's like, oh yeah, I've been here before. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I sometimes use the example of I'm also a yin teacher and I love yin. It has been such a transformative practice for me with mental health. And so if I am in a state of anxiety, I can come into child's pose and hold it for five minutes with no problem. Many people, though, if they've never done that before, their body is going to reject it. And completely flip out because it's like, why are you trying to bring me into stillness when I am intent on freaking out right now? Mm -hmm. So 
you know, that took time though, for me to be able to get to the point where child's pose for me is like, okay, this is your invitation Mm -hmm. to notice what's happening. And it's a clear message, as you were saying to the nervous system and to the body, you're like, okay, we're shifting gears now. And you know what's happening and you've been there before and the body's like, all right, I know this is safe. I know where we're going. I'm coming with you. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. Is there, are are there some misconception about anxiety or is there anything we need to understand better than just the basic knowledge to be able to reduce it more effectively? I assume maybe there's stuff people have like a wrong idea about and then they're going about it and it's not helpful or I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, there's a couple of things that come to mind really right away. The first one is that there's often the expectation that we just need to get over it Mm. and that is unfortunately a very large stigma that still exists, but not even in the outside world with the internal world. So many people when they're anxious are like, why can't I get over this? Like, mm-hmm. what is my problem? Not, not having that acceptance of the self. And with that also, it can be very difficult for family members to witness. And so then it's like, can you just get over this? Or can you fix this? So that we can get past this. And anxiety is a journey. And for many people, it's a lifelong journey. So in my own experience, my anxiety is extremely well managed now. It has taken a lot of work, daily work just about. And it is not something I take for granted. But I'm very well aware that I still have anxiety. Mm-hmm. I just am very well aware of the tools that I need that work for my body on how to help manage and mitigate that. So panic attacks for me are almost non-existent now, whereas at at one point they were about seven to 10 a day. So that is a big shift. That's a big change. right? Mm -hmm. It's a big change. It, It took a lot of work. And so there's that. And I don't have the expectation that it's gone. And I don't love the idea of getting past it because I have to go through it. And I have to be with it and be okay with it in order to have acceptance around it. Because my understanding or my perception is that anxiety really does sympathy. It really does thinking it's being, it it does think it's being helpful to you. And so I have to have a little bit of gratitude around that, that my body is actually trying to protect me. It's not trying to piss me off Mm -hmm. or you know, it's not out to get me. It thinks it's helping. And so being grateful for that aspect is a really big one. That is a huge misconception to me is the idea of getting over it. And also that this is something that can happen quickly. I mean, Mm. you know, your, your listeners are, are mainly the yoga community who have likely heard of samskaras, samsaras or neural pathways. These neural pathways take years to form. Many of them are inherited And so the reality is, you know, I'm 42. It's maybe not going to take me 42 years to to shift my neural pathways or to create new ones, but it's certainly not going to take me 42 seconds. (laughs) And so that's why I'm saying like, this has been years of work. Like I've been in therapy on and off since I was 16. And now I go for my tune-ups is what I call them. Like I don't need to go regularly but I still will go even when I'm, you know, really, really in a stable period, I will still check in with my teens just to make sure that I'm not missing something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So prevention is part of the journey. Patience is part of the journey. And the importance, uh, I really like that you mentioned the importance of gratitude and self-compassion and kindness. And I feel like that has a bigger impact than most people might consider. Not only in the sense that when you're not having these practices and you're just hoping to get over it and move on and be done with it, you're rejecting a part of yourself and you're rejecting a part of yourself that, as you say, is actually helping you. And that rejection, that separation, that cutting is not helping, is creating even more of that anxiety. You don't, you might not realize it, but I think it's adding on to the layers of not feeling at home in yourself. And I think for me, anxiety is, is in a simple way, kind of, there's a feeling of not being at home. There's a feeling of discomfort, of this, you know, dis-ease within. And I think you're adding on to the fire without even knowing if you don't have practices of compassion and self, you know, kindness. I don't know what you think about that. Oh, yes, absolutely. (laughs) It's and, and what you just said to me was so true. And if I can put it into a slightly different form, the more you fight anxiety, the more anxious you'll be. Mm hmm. Because it's, it's going to, it's kind of like if somebody is saying something to you and you're not listening, they'll just say it over and over again, or they'll yell it louder and louder. Anxiety is the same. It's actually trying to send you a message. So if you are able to acknowledge and listen to that message and be grateful for that message, it doesn't mean you need to agree with that message. It doesn't mean you need to be like, okay, cool. I'll be anxious. Let's do this. But having that acceptance, which is that concept of, of self-compassion, And you're right. That is something that is so, so lacking and is really where almost all of my teaching comes from is from a place of softening, kindness, love, compassion, and acceptance. Because if we can't accept it, then we're always fighting this piece of ourselves. And, you know, I, I was very similar in that I fought anxiety for a really long time. I was like, okay, how can I get over it? How can I get past it? How can I make it never exist Mm -hmm. again. And it was only when I got to the point of saying, how can I be okay with being anxious that there was a shift that happened? And the work that I was doing started to look completely different. Mm. How so? How How did that translate, that shift? The work I was doing started to work. Really, mm-hmm. that instead of this fighting, so it's not the of, tools you were using that changed. It's the results you were getting with the same tools. Yeah, Mm-mm. yeah. Because I started actually being aware that the tools could help, and that the tools weren't there to make it go away. They were there to help manage it. Now, as a byproduct of that, by using the tools, it did go away, mm-hmm. or it went away faster. Mm-hmm. But I had to get to the point where I accepted that this was part of who I was. So I really got to the point where anxiety was a part of my life, but it was not my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So coming back to the piece that we talked in the beginning, how is yoga helping? It's creating awareness. And now we're seeing or we're talking about well, if you're not practicing compassion and, and kindness, you're blocking or you're pushing away. So you're closing that line of communication. You're not allowing yourself to have awareness on what's going on because you're 
pretending it's not happening, hoping, wishing it's just going to disappear. If I do X, Y, Z, it'll just go away. So yoga as a tool, there's many different things we can do in, you know, when we say yoga, it's such a vast toolkit. Yeah. <laughs> um, if we start with movement practices, what does a movement practice geared towards reducing stress and anxiety looks like versus another type of practice? Or what's particular about that kind of practice in your experience and in your teachings? Yeah. So first of all, I will say that yoga is a compassion practice mm. because getting on your mat and, and indicating to yourself that you are worth it to be on your mat is some, you know, some people will disagree with this, but it, to me, the reason you are coming to your mat is actually irrelevant. Whether you're going for a workout or you're going for a work in it, you will actually have the same result. Um, you just might not be aware of that result, you know? So I think that that in itself is a compassion practice for a movement practice. There are certain things that happen in movement practices, regardless of the style. In some, there's a repetitiveness. So in some styles of yoga, it's the same sequence, whether it's for a month or all the time. That can be really, really helpful in calming the part of the mind that is wondering what's coming next. Mm -hmm. And so you'll see this too in trauma-informed yoga. Of you, you won't necessarily know what the sequence is, but you, you'll know what the class is set out to look like. And that's to take that guesswork away because often it's the uncertainty that creates anxiety within us. The other piece of it is, well, there's two other pieces of it. One is rhythmic movement. So rhythmic movement is really great for the nervous system because again, it knows what to expect. And so it's creating this harmony. And if you're crossing over your body, then you're doing all sorts of crossing hemispheres of your brain, which is a whole other conversation, but really, really great for regulating. And the third main piece is the linking of the breath with the movement, which is known to have a calming effect on the nervous system. And I want to be clear too that yes, our goal in most yoga is ujjayi breath or an even breath or samavritti or any of these things. But ultimately at the beginning, if you are able to link the breath with the movement, however short that movement and breath is, mm -hmm. that is creating a relationship within your body between the body and the mind. And so, you know, often when I'm teaching, you know, if I'm teaching a public flow class, I generally cue ujjayi breath, but I was just teaching a yoga for anxiety series. I didn't cue the breath at all. I just asked them to notice their breath. And that's because I'm going to have, there were 16 people in the class. Well, I'm going to have 16 different breath lengths. And I don't want them to feel as though I'm making them breathe too quickly or too slowly compared to what is naturally happening in their body. And so instead getting them to link the breath with the movement gives them this, this feeling of success, this feeling of repetition, and this feeling of potentially calming the nervous system. Mm -hmm. So then no matter how their practice looks like, people can focus on linking the breath, creating a rhythm, creating a pattern. And if, you, if they repeat the same movements again and again, keep it really simple, then those three are the keys to having a practice that will help. Yes. Calm that and sympathetic response. Absolutely. And those are going to be different for each person. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, my favorite is a little bit of cat cow. And when I say a little bit, I, I often mean like five minutes of cat cow. I could stay in cat cow for hours, but maybe changing it up a little bit, you know, shifting, adding in some oscillations, body rolls, whatever, 
And then maybe for me, it's child's pose, plank, up dog, child's pose, plank, up dog, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. that, that for me works really well because it warms up my spine. It warms up my body, but I'm keeping four things on the ground, my hands and my knees, and then also my feet. So technically six. (laughs) So for me, the more grounding, the better. Mm-hmm. Whereas for others, sun salutations are going to be the perfect thing. Even though a lot of the time there's only two things connected to the ground, they may need that faster or stronger or more solar side mm-hmm. activated before they can conceive of coming down to the ground. So we talk about this as meeting the nervous system where it is. And again, you know, as somebody who practices every day, and I also want to be clear that that doesn't mean that I do an hour to an hour and a half yoga practice every day. Some days it's five minutes. Mm -hmm. For me, as soon as I come onto hands and knees, my body is like, okay, I know what we're doing now. Yeah. But when I first started practicing, I needed that stronger activeness beforehand Mm -hmm. because I was so um, like high up, so, so out of my body that it made me come in, have to come in first. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's just kind of one thing I wanted to say, because yes, flow-based practices, phenomenal, but those are two very different flow-based practices. And yeah. for somebody to the come rhythm, into cat-cow. The, the fact yeah. that there is a rhythm doesn't mean speed. Like rhythm is not speed, just so we're clear if you're listening. A hundred percent. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So now that we've talked about the movement practice, what else in the toolkit of yoga would you suggest, would you focus on with clients to help reduce or alleviate anxiety or stress? So pranayama, breastwork is a, is a big one as well. Um, Do you have some favorites I, in, in that category? Oh, yes. Yes, I do. Um, I have... Um, for me, the alternate nostril breath is a big one. Yeah. Um, although I don't do it with my hands. Like I don't actually close my nostrils with my fingers mm-hmm. for two reasons. One, sometimes my coordination when I'm anxious is not there and I get so confused by life in general. And the other thing is I actually have small nasal passages. And so it's difficult for me to get the amount of breath. So I do it meditatively from a visual standpoint where I will visualize inhaling through the left, visualize exhaling through the right. So that's one that I teach people quite a bit Mm -hmm. um, because it can be done anywhere. So I'm also of the mindset of making sure that tools are accessible, that if they want to do it on their own, they can. But if they're in a meeting in an office and they need to do something, that they can also do something that's not like, hey, I'm just going to be playing with my face a little bit here. <laughs> Keep you <know>? talking, we're good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nothing to see here, nothing is happening. So that is, um, that is one that I love to do because then it also translates into you can just do the left side if you're feeling really unstable or, or over-energized or if you're feeling really sluggish and sleepy, you can just do the right side. I use the example of sometimes I'll have to teach sunrise yoga and I'm the farthest thing from a morning person. And so if I'm teaching sunrise yoga, I am like legitimately just breathing through my right nostril the whole time so that I can match the energy that should be in the room (laughs) and not put people to sleep. So that's a really big one. Um, Also, I teach a lot of finger breathing, 
which is difficult, obviously, to teach um, without a visual. But you bring your thumb to the crease of your index finger. Mm -hmm. And on an inhale, you slide up to the finger pad. And on an exhale, you slide down to the index finger. And then move over to the middle finger, same thing, Mm. ring finger, and the pinky finger. And again, you can do this as slowly as you like. Sometimes if at the beginning, if the breath is really quick, you might, it might be fast. And then you may notice that it starts to naturally slow down. It gives a tactile sensation Mm -hmm. with the fingers, which can help to um, change the perception of the mind and change the attention of the mind. Totally. And it also gives you something to focus on while combining with the breath. And you can also hide that under the table. (laughs) Yeah, you can. That work. absolutely (laughs) or you can do it in the subway you can do it you know it's not yeah it's it's, yeah yeah and I mean even if anybody sees you they're just thinking that you're feeling your finger like you know (laughs) feeling so yeah just and it's it's like anything that involves self-touch where it's a um an intentional self-touch is so soothing caring and loving for the body it's very healing touch in general Mm -hmm. is very healing Mm -hmm. yeah all right, so we have alternate nostril breathing or only one side. Um, and then we have that finger breath. Any any other breath are kind of your go-to? I mean, bumblebee breath, honeybee mm-hmm. breath, brummery breath, whatever you want to um, refer to it as is, is like really good. One. Oh my gosh, It's I so love weird. It. it was so amazing. <laughs> I know. I was teaching in a teacher training one time and we were doing it and the person, it was the first class of the teacher training and she thought that there were actually bees because we, there were bees on the roof of this building and she was like I thought the bees had escaped and I just I've never forgotten it and it makes me giggle um but the thing about uh bumblebee breath is it's really really calming however if you are in a very heightened state it can be anxiety inducing so you know that's something that is one that I always suggest that people play with when they're not anxious so that their body can start to feel the effects of it. So then if you introduce it when you are anxious, you already have that muscle memory and that understanding from your body of what it is. And maybe doing it a little less loud, like starting with a very like slow and like just in your kind of mouth sound and not like, you know, Yeah, <laughs> and aiming for as deep as you can get. So instead of like, you know, the regular like going, that's really deep for my voice. <laughs> but yeah, so the lower tones tend to be more calming for the body. Um, and just as a side note, then you're having to concentrate on getting your voice really low. So again, it's like sometimes we we are looking to trick the body, but not in a way that we're trying to be rude to the body. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How about Sitali? Sitali can be really, really, really good as a cooling breath. It depends on some people when they're anxious are freezing. And mm. so if you're somebody who overheats when you're anxious, then yes, absolutely. Satali. If you are somebody who Good gets nuance. the shivers, Kapalabhati. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah. that too is super rhythmic. A bit even, there's not like that movement, but there's a movement in the breath. So that brings yep. back that rhythmic, repetitive movement that links with the breath, right? It's just that you're seated instead, but... True. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we've talked about breath. We've actually talked about movement and compassion and kindness already. So anything Mm -hmm. else? 
you can start to look into different mudras that might work. Um, and then I always encourage a mindfulness practice, generally one that's, that's centered around loving kindness. Because again, that's, that goes along with the compassion. And whenever I invite people to start a loving kindness meditation, I have them only focus on themselves. So in traditional loving kindness, you focus on yourself, neutral person, person you're in conflict with, so on and so forth. Or, you know, there's so many different variations of a, of a meta meditation. When I first start teaching it to people or people who do have mental health stressors, <laughs> pun fully intended there, um, to practice it just to yourself. And that is really to plant the seeds of intention of loving yourself and having kindness and compassion for yourself so that you can have this sense of acceptance and of befriending what is happening in your body. Mm -hmm. Do you encourage other types of meditation or you talked about the visualization of the breath, but other visualization of calmness or anything that kind of balances out the state of anxiety? Yes and no. My That can work absolutely for people. My experience has been that I typically want to give people tools that are really easy to access. And so, you know, the visualization of alternate nostril breathing is a great meditative practice because it's one they can do on their own. Loving kindness is one they can do on their own. I try, especially at the beginning, to avoid things that require somebody else to be around. Mm. And so often, you know, if, if somebody's having trouble breathing or their stomach is hurting from anxiety... It's, it can be difficult in the beginning to walk yourself through how to visualize releasing the tension in the, in the chest and the belly. And so I tend to stay away from that, but that doesn't mean that they don't work. Mm -hmm. It's just what my experience has been. I want people to be able to go home and find what works for them that they can tap into on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And give them that empowerment that they could do it by themselves. Yeah, I really you know, my goal is always to make it so they don't have to see me again. And as much as I love working with people and want to see people forever, <laughs> you know, I want, I want them to be empowered. I want them to have that, that sense of acceptance and appreciation for themselves that they don't need external validation or external influence mm -hmm. because they have it all within themselves. Mm -hmm. So talking about that empowerment and being able to do things on our own at home and at work in the environment we're in, and you just mentioned um, stomach issues and that kind of made a little light, a little light bulb in my head. So is there any other like at home, small everyday tips or tools? Maybe it's around food or maybe I'm thinking also like a night routine or things that people can easily just add into their habits or consider in what they're doing that might help their general, even if it's just more mindfulness into that action or their general state of anxiety or stress? Absolutely. Yeah. One of the biggest ones is a routine. Um, and I know that this, especially um, going through a pandemic, routine went out the window for a lot of people um, for the first few months, you know, when everything was shut down. Mm -hmm. And this is especially where kids were affected, that there, there wasn't this daily routine. And so that is a big factor. So still getting up, you know, at a, a reasonable time, eating your three meals or however you eat, con continuing that consistency of, of food. Um, 
and going to bed at the same time. So that routine, again, you're talking about predictability for your body. Rhythm. And so that can be rhythm. Exactly. That can be really helpful. Um, You know, I think it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyways, like nourishing food that gives your body as much vital life force energy, prana as you can. Um, is going to be helpful for the body as well as the environment. You know, being in a toxic environment isn't necessarily going to be supportive for your anxiety or for any anxiety. Um, and then the other thing too is finding something that fills your soul. So whether that is a bath every day, whether that is journaling, whether that is a cup of tea with a piece of chocolate, whether that is, you know, putting your feet up and having things off for 10 minutes every single day, Mm -hmm. but doing something that fills your soul. And that the, the reason being is it's, again, it goes back to this compassion piece and kindness piece is that you are telling yourself that you are worth it, that you are worthy of nurturing. And who better to nurture than you? Mm-hmm. So that's, again, going to be different for every single person. Mm-hmm. You brought up journaling. Do you have any um, suggestion into what people might want to reflect on as they start to build that awareness around their situation and how it's evolving with the tools they'll be trying that we listed today? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a gratitude journal is... is um, but generally the easiest one to start with. Um, if you write down three things you're grateful for every single day. When I first started a gratitude journal, it was like, I'm grateful for my house. I'm grateful for my children. I'm grateful for my husband because I was like, I can't think that deeply. And then it evolved because I got into the rhythm of doing it every single day. And, and I always had the rule that I could write the same thing if I wanted to. So sometimes in gratitude journal prompts, you'll see like, don't write the same thing the next day or the day or for a certain number of days. And I'm like, Hey, if I, if I write the same three things, I'm still grateful for those. Mm -hmm. So again, it was like taking off an expectation and, and really approaching it with kindness. And the other thing is to just notice how you felt. So sometimes what can happen with mental health is we assume that it's always bad. And so looking at how did I feel today and, and what is something I can I can celebrate today. Mm-hmm. Like, did I notice that I was anxious? If you noticed you were anxious, that's awareness. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Wicked. Good job. Write yeah. that down. Celebration journals are great because I find when you just, oftentimes when you just journal to journal, it's the negative stuff that's going to come up more. But a celebration journal, or I've seen people call it like a stack of awesome, or just writing down what has been good today what has you yeah. know helped you in some way, like is a different way to go over your day. Yeah. And I've seen too, my son has this in his grade nine class, um, that they, every day they have a, a blank circle and they have to fill in a face. And so, you know, he can fill in happy or content or bored or sad or angry or whatever. And so if you fill in something like that, if you just draw, you know, 14 circles on a page for two weeks, that's where you can really start to see like, oh, I actually only had four days that my overall feeling was sad or angry. 
And the rest was really good, but I forget about that, mm-hmm. you know? So that's a big piece too, because the reality is we, we sometimes have an expectation that it's always going to be awesome. And it has to be perfect. And if it's not a hundred percent, and if it's not always awesome, it's, I'm looking for a word, not explicit. It's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, uh, uh. I that's the only word I was coming up with too. So we're all good there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, awesome. So those are really, really great tips. Um, anything else you'd like to add before we finish? We're already going to wrap it up. I feel like we could have talked about this much longer, but if there's one takeaway you'd like listeners to leave with today, what would that be? The one takeaway I would love people to leave with is to know that they are not alone and that they are still wonderful. There is nothing wrong with them and to embrace that. Mm, beautiful. I'll put all your info in the show notes, obviously. But in the meantime, what's the best place for people to find you if they want to ask more questions and they want to work with you in some capacity? Definitely my website. It's within youyoga.com. And I also have a lot of free offerings on there. I have some free meditations, yoga nidras, um, and a couple of yin classes are up there. So lots of free offerings on there. Uh, and you can always just reach out and, and let me know your thoughts. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Erica. I think that was a very helpful episode. Good. Thank you so much for joining in today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review anywhere you listen. Come connect with us on Instagram at On and Off Your Mat Podcast. And if you want to help me continue to produce the podcast, then visit patreon.com slash on and off your mat to donate or become a premium member and get your hands on all our exclusive content. Check out the show notes to find more info about our guest of today, Amanda Whiting, or my top five biggest takeaways from this episode. Before you go, I just want to say a last thank you to Alexander Saba, working in the background, creating the music, editing, and mastering this podcast. Once again, thank you for listening. Until next time.